The wealthmanagement.com Advisor Innovations Podcast is sponsored by LPL. As financial advice continues to evolve, LPL is at the forefront. Whether it's growing your RIA or building an independent practice, advisors can pick the business model, services, technology, and product mix that best meets their clients' needs. As a top wealth management firm, 100% dedicated to advisor success, LPL looks forward to learning how they can help you build your tomorrow today. For more information and show notes, visit go.lpl.com backslash advisor innovation. That's go.lpl.com backslash advisor innovation. Thanks very much for joining us here on the Advisor Innovations Podcast. Happy to have you along. Uh, this, as you know, is wealthmanagement.com's opportunity to cast a pretty wide net and talk to folks who are deeply embedded in the business of wealth management and moving the industry forward through unique practices, building technology, creating new businesses in the space. And today I'm speaking to Dave DeVoe, the founder and CEO of DeVoe & Company. Dave, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. It's great to be here. You have, I think, for 17 years, had a front row seat at the development and evolution of this industry. So I can't think of a better person to talk about where the industry is headed, where it's at, what it looks like in the near future. I should also mention that uh, some of your initiatives have been finalists in several of our WealthManagement.com industry awards. So thanks for participating in that. And last year, you won the award for DeVoe Capital Works, uh, which hopefully we can get into a little bit in a minute. But congratulations for those awards. Oh, absolutely. It's a pleasure to be part of that process. And also, I just have a lot of admiration for what you're doing. I think this is a, a rich, dynamic industry, and uh, the reporting you folks do, I think, uh, helps everyone run better businesses. Well, that's the goal. So thanks very much for that. I know you're calling in from sunny California. So before we start, like New York, restrictions were just lifted. I have to ask, how is it there where you are? Are folks back out and about? Got masks off? Are people partying in the streets, roaring 20s style? Is that... Uh... Well, let's see. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not quite at that end. Let's see. You can imagine, you mentioned 17 years. 17 years, I, I've supported REAs. And you, you can imagine REAs are, are essentially small businesses. So I was pretty passionate about small businesses not being damaged by some poor decision-making related to COVID. Unfortunately, our state, not to get political, but really clamped down too aggressively. And I think it created some more suffering than, than was needed. We're slowly coming out of it, but you can see people starting to get out. I think a bunch of elements lifted this weekend. And that might be an interesting topic too. We've done a little bit of research on the impact of COVID to the industry, which I think will have some fascinating outputs too. Yeah, well, that was going to be uh, my segue into that exact topic. I remember when the pandemic first started, I think if we go back a little over a year ago, there was a bit of a lull in the mergers and acquisition space. It seems that the folks in RA land kind of pulled back a little bit from deal making. It didn't last too long, though, right? I mean, it seemed we finished the year, the numbers better than I do, but it seems consistent, record-setting pace of activity when it comes to mergers, acquisitions, and deals in the registered investment advisory space. COVID didn't slow it down. Yeah, yeah. You're spot on. I think leading up, leading up 2020, we had, I think, six successive record years of M&A activity, one being bigger than the previous one. And if we go back in the time machine, COVID was pretty disconcerting. A year and change ago, in February and March, you and I and everyone else on the planet was wondering what was going to happen. So it was pretty disconcerting. I was less concerned with M&A activity. I was more concerned with just ensuring that REAs moved through this new crisis in the most effective way possible. I had lived through 2008, and we saw a lot of damage to the industry from 2008. It took about two years and a variety of metrics to recover. So we went on record. We got the gang together. We have 15 people now in the team, and, and probably seven of them have run billion-dollar-plus REAs, plus a couple of nerdy consultants like me. And we got the gang together, and we said, okay, gee whiz, this is a big deal. What's going to happen? And we got out the crystal ball. We started planning to the future, as we often do, and think through trends. 
And I, I guess I was on and off. We, we expected a lull of activity to occur, followed by a surge of activity before we moved back to a, a new normal. And the, the lull, it, it played out that way. I mean, it's an elegant arc when you plot it. It's exactly sort of the arc that we expected. But that lull was much shorter than we anticipated. We didn't go on record, but I'll tell you now, privately, we thought it'd be several quarters. It was several months of slowdown of M&A activity before that spring uncoiled. And um, interestingly, what drove that that spring back was not just good news. The market responded pretty quickly. We had a quick downturn in terms of the stock market that had a profound effect upon the revenue and profitability of RAAs. In, in Q1 in 2020, our RAA profitability was down 40%. Mm. But it came back quickly. Not only good news, the, the stock market came back. But what we also saw occur... And what ultimately drove the record number of M&A activities was the billion-dollar-plus firms. So when COVID hit, professionally managed firms where people had full-time COO and head of marketing and CEO positions in the firm, during that process, they could focus their undivided attention on strategic initiatives like buying and selling a firm. So billion-dollar-plus firms actually increased pretty significantly versus the previous year, the M&A activity. Under a billion dollars has slowed down dramatically. And that's because under a billion dollars, you're typically running a firm where you spend part of your time managing client relationships and the rest running the company. Well, when a crisis hits in this industry, all hands on deck are focused on taking care of clients. And those organizations that were run by founders, the founders were spending all their time taking care of clients and staff and didn't have time for M&A. So long story, and sorry to start off with such a long soliloquy, but long story short, 2020 ended up being yet another record year of M&A activity as, as the acquisitions continued to ramp up through the course of the year. Yeah, you're really making a distinction there, and you've made it for a while now, I think even pre-pandemic, the distinction between practices and professionally managed businesses in the RA space and, and where that line kind of falls, right? When do advisors realize that their firm has grown large enough that they need professional management? Perhaps that's not even them. Perhaps that's not even the primary advisor. They bring in professional managers to run the business. As you say, I think during when times are tough during COVID, that really proves to be the, the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. It's a fascinating decision point. You can imagine you you start with a book of business. Eventually, you move beyond administrative staff and you say, hey, let's bring on another advisor, another advisor after that. And you become that, that business that you alluded to. The decision to become professionally managed is a pretty big deal. So a few things are happening. One is that you've hit a certain scale where you've decided, okay, we need full-time management, typically a COO or a director of operations, full-time senior executive to, to run the company is the first domino to fall in that professional management. And you can imagine that's a big deal. One is economically, you're writing, you're paying someone a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes directly out of the founders or the founding team's pocket. More importantly, you're giving up degrees of control. Founders of companies are control freaks. That's why companies succeed is, is someone so passionate about making sure everything works well. So it's a big transition to, to move out of that control freak mindset and say, you know what? The right thing to do is to give up control of things, to trust other people, to let them do it their way. So it's a big psychological shift too. And then there's another implication, which is during this period, you're migrating responsibilities. You're letting someone else get in the cockpit. They're starting to understand how to do things. You're almost pulling back on a, on a spring that's eventually going to unload. But during that process, because your expenses are going up, because certain things are moving slower as you you allow someone to make different decisions, 
the the growth and the profitability goes through um, uh, probably about a year, year and a half of compression. You're signing up for smaller margins and slower growth for a little while until, boom, when you get it right, it really unlocks the value and power and you take your company can go to a whole nother uh, level of success. Is this, these companies that uh, get over that hump and go to that new level of success, is this what you refer to when you talk about meta RIA? That's even two rungs above that. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. We're getting into cool trends that are happening in the industry. So you start with that book of business, eventually you become that going concern, that business. We just talked about the shift over to professional management. The next phase after that is becoming an enterprise. So you're not just having a person who's a professional management, you're creating teams of people. You're now becoming a much larger organization. Hightower, for instance, has 32 people overseeing technology where a firm that just became professional managed might have one person. But eventually we move into this new tier and this is a a term that we coined. We couldn't help but see, and others saw it too, that there's certain organizations that are beyond just big, 10 billion plus, but they're really changing the way things are done. They're shaping the industry. There's about two dozen firms that are just becoming the vanguard of the industry. So after noodling on on how to uh, allude to these firms, uh, believe it or not, it, it hit me when I was playing my son in Fortnite. <laughs> I was a six-year-old <laughs> kid and he was talking about meta that. And I'm like, what's meta? And he's like, it's the most effective tactics available to win the game like Fortnite or some of these online gaming. So it's an online gaming term. And I was like, wow, you know what? These organizations, uh, these two dozen firms that not only are professional, have sophisticated management teams that are making bold, innovative decisions, they're backed by private equity. They have almost unlimited capital to get really creative in what they're doing. These folks are are looking at the landscape. They're looking at the tool set available to very large organizations and they're selecting the best tactics available to go change the game. A firm like Edelman, uh, the largest in the business, 280 billion. They spoke at our MA Plus event several months ago. And they alluded to tens of millions of dollars they're spending on marketing and technology using almost creepy Cambridge analytics to, to mine the, the US universe and start to help clients, US investors, understand how money can be managed better by the wealth management industry, RAAs, and then ultimately connect and even funnel 200,000 leads, 200,000 leads a year Hmm. into their advisors. So that's an example. Wealth Enhancement Group does a lot of interesting technology. You have firms like Mercer that are sort of standardizing almost a a Ritz-Carlton common experience for all their clients. So these meta RAAs, these game-changing RAAs are really shaping the industry in, in ways that are going to emerge quickly that we've never seen. Yeah, that's it's fascinating because it, it, things change slow until they really change really fast. And and I seem to recall it wasn't that long ago where we were talking about RAAs getting to over a billion dollars was considered a, yeah. a big deal. And now, how many firms are over a billion? How many RA firms have more than I this? think the latest count I saw was 750. And I, I yeah. agree. I remember when it was like 100 and it was like this, wow. It, the fascinating thing too, I talked to firms that have $4 billion now and they were the billion-dollar firms that you and I used to talk to a couple of years ago, like, wow, you guys made it. And $4 billion firms are wringing their hands a little bit. They feel good, but they're saying, wow, the competitive landscape is changing so quickly. Like, are we too small? Should we be merging with another partner? Should we be joining these firms? So it's been a profound shift in terms of the the management psychology of what big is and what the competitive landscape looks like. Yeah, and it's all a testament to the success of this business model, right? The registered investment advisory business model. Indeed, indeed. Clearly yeah. won, the, won the game in terms of consumer preference, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I think we mentioned private equity in passing. 
that's why private equity has been and it increasingly becomes more interested in this space. And private equity often alluded to as smart money. There's a lot of legitimacy to that. These are really smart people that end up spending their time, whether they're a blue chip organization like Carlisle or Texas Pacific, or they're a boutique that only focuses on financial services. But you know, these are individuals that are, are doing their best to look at industries and then the subcomponents of industries and bet on the, the winning models. So each time we see a private equity investment, in this space, it's really smart people voting with their pocketbook that this is the the winning model, something that you, I, and everyone in this industry has known for 30 years. Let me ask you about the private equity coming into the space because there's not it's not without some controversy. Thought is that private equity investors have a timeline of seven to ten years, yet every before some sort of liquidity event, before they'll be looking for some sort of exit or liquidity event. Yet almost every RIA I speak to who's taken private equity money assures me that their private equity partner is in it for the long term. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's long-term money. Uh, I'm not going to name names, or, but sure. both of those things can't be true. And is there a reckoning with private equity that comes sooner rather than later? And if so, where does it go? I mean, are we going to see more IPOs, more publicly traded, like a focus financial, uh, public market access, more, I don't know, broader investors coming into the space? What happens when the private equity timeline runs out? Yeah. So it's interesting. It's a valid concern. And it's, it's kind of fascinating once you get into the details. Not a common concern. Gee, I know enough about private equity to know that there's a fuse on this money. The participants in a given fund are are planning to, they're committing to nine years and, and consequently any investments can have a five to seven year horizon or so. And then the boogeyman comes, right? That private equity fund needs to liquefy it and then doomsday occur. Well, it's not necessarily doomsday. Matter of fact, good news for this industry. So far, we haven't seen a doomsday scenario. And what do I mean by that? Well, there's a couple levels. One is think of private equity as not just capital. Right. It's not just a check. Private equity firms are unique, both in terms of the boutiques versus the mega or blue chip organizations. And they each have their own set of characteristics and capabilities. Focus, for example, I won't go through every private equity partner they had through the process, but it is, it's an interesting story. They started with a, a company that is really good at not only making investments as a blue chip organization, but that team there is really good at working the phones and reaching out. They, they actually, it's a unique aspect of that company where they have a team of very junior people as part of the private equity firm. So when Focus took that investment, they had this group that could pick up the phones and call on behalf of Rudy and Regini and Lenny and start to fill the pipeline for Focus. So that was really valuable. It's not just 32 million. It's a team of people that are supporting them. A little later in the life cycle, they really needed private equity firm that could take them from becoming a, an early stage firm to a mid-stage firm. Eventually, they moved to Centerbridge that does almost LBO level things and, and has great expertise too in going public. And then they also, KKR was part of the equation at a point as well. KKR has great expertise in terms of using debt and leverage in a very intelligent way, right? That can be used in a good way or, or a bad way. Those guys are, are experts in that. So when you think about these organizations, whether it's Focus or Mercer or Wealth Enhancement Group, a lot of these organizations don't just have one private equity firm. And as soon as they they sell, they, they need to have an IPO or sell externally to a third party. They often can go private equity to private equity to private equity to private equity. You are right. Typically, there's some point of arrival. Focus Financial Partners going public. Public, proof of concept, United Capital selling to third party, Goldman Sachs, they didn't go public, but they sold to a publicly traded firm. These are often the, the point of arrival, but clearly there's different partners throughout the, the process and each one has their own set of characteristics. 
I want to go back to something that you said earlier about the the $4 million firm maybe wringing their hands a little bit, or $4 billion firm wringing their hands a little bit, looking over their shoulder, because this is a firm that might be interested in some of these options. Why is that? Is it a point where we're sort of at the industry at a barbell, where if you're a a small lifestyle boutique RIA, you're going to be fine, you're you're making a good living, you're doing what you need to be doing, or you need to be one of these, or at least in the orbit of one of these mega enterprises, and ground in between is, is perilous. Is that the landscape you're painting? No, I, I don't. I know there that concepts out there, sort of the challenging middle, or there's some name that that others have used for it. And there's also paranoia that gee, these mega or meta REAs, depending on who you're looking at, are going to dominate the space. I, I don't see it as an Armageddon scenario. I've done some work over the years, my my trainings in business strategy. So I look at other industries and think through, okay, how's this similar or different from that? I mean, this is kind of a unique industry where it's hyper-fragmented, 10,000 firms in the industry plus. These industries go through a natural period of consolidation. And we have some interesting things that are occurring where we have these meta REAs, like let's just pull on that thread. Let's say there's 25 firms that are really going to change the the game here. They're going to shape it. They're going to do things differently. I've been on record saying, hey, I'm going to be a little provocative. These firms are not only going to grow faster and run better, they're going to serve clients better. All right, so people are coming after me with stakes here. This is not okay. But you know, one could argue that if they're doing their job right, they should be able to do that, right? You have a well, sophisticated... they have the resources too. Yeah, the, the, the resources, the staff, the the manpower, the people power, I guess. To exactly, to yeah, yeah. So if they're approaching it right, they should, quote unquote, be able to do. So on one hand, you see these innovative, well capitalized firms that are here to change the game that could strike the fear in the hearts of small, medium, or large-sized firms. I don't think that fear is critical. I don't see this devastating the REA space like Expedia did to the travel agency years ago. Again, a hyper-fragmented industry, which overnight was transformed and those smaller organizations went away because there's such low barriers to entry in this industry. Frankly, whether you're, you're large, medium, or even small, you can serve clients so well Right. And you can make a great living doing it too. You can be the, the top 5% earners with under 100 million. Nothing wrong with 100 or 25 or any other figure. But because of that, I don't see it as being death knell or Armageddon to the industry. I don't necessarily see a barbell effect occurring either, but I do see a few things. One is the game is changing. And you now have the artillery of a Merrill Lynch or a Morgan Stanley from years ago, but the business model is the same, right? They can say they're fiduciaries and they are. So it becomes a little more competitive versus these larger peers. They have some valuable and powerful tools and resources. So instead, it becomes a decision. So a lot of our work, we consider ourselves goal-based consultants and investment bankers, strategic thinkers. You really want to start with your goals and objectives and what you seek to achieve. And from there, you can start to determine without fear that your company is going to get destroyed. Gee, do I want to stay independent? And I, I love what I'm doing. And I either want a lifestyle business or I just want to do this however I want. My, we want to stay independent. Or wait a second, it might be better or more interesting if we're we're part of a bigger organization. They can take some headaches and some administrative things off our collective plates. They can provide us with a broader set of services or capabilities or greater scale or branding or whatever it might be, or access to 200,000 referral leads a year or whatever else. Like If that equation should be what's best for the clients, what's best for the staff, what's best for the company, and what's going to make things most fun, believe it or not. Because you can imagine 
And there's no right or wrong answer here, but some people are going to have more fun running their company, doing it however they want. And others couldn't be happier once they join forces with this bigger organization that can remove headaches and allow them to spend more of their time doing what they love the most. But I totally skipped over your question. Your, your question was a $4 billion player. So yeah, those folks, I don't think it's out of fear or paralyzing fear. I think they look at the landscape they're even more attuned with some of these meta REAs. They're seeing their multi-billion dollar peers sell into these companies and they're starting to, to both be open to different options. Jeep, maybe we should sell too. Or if this is what we're going to com- be competing with, do we want to change our game a bit? Oftentimes too, these three, four, five billion dollar firms have some challenges to migrate equity to the next generation, right? It's just mm-hmm. the company has become so successful, great problem to have, but a problem nonetheless, that G2 can't afford them. So then it's, okay, do we join for, maybe they don't even have certain management um, capabilities. So if we join forces with a like-size firm, but a different owner and advisor profile, does that unlock some value and power? Do we have some complementary firms that can add value? It's part of the the complexion that folks are thinking through, which I think is just a, a more mature from a business perspective, a more management-oriented, mature set of decision-making tools than the billion-dollar firms of yesteryear that were just passionately independent with blinders on to any other way it could be. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there, there's no reason that every RIA needs to be an independent entrepreneur, right? I mean, there's a lot of options to, to grow a business in this space. You mentioned uh, G2, and I think something that you have recently been working on are some of the human capital challenges inside larger RIAs, maybe even inside larger meta RIAs. The ability to kind of put these management teams in place and figure out roles and alignment and, and this kind of thing. You said something uh, that the RA is an industry is approaching a succession crisis, but that's actually just a symptom of a human capital ailment. What do you mean by that? We all know, and it's great. I, I guess you're saying those are my words. I was about to say, man, you articulated that really well. <laughs> no, that <was> Maybe <laughs> it's something we say to you. Uh, yeah, I think it's spot on. We do, and I think most of us know, 90% of advisors in a survey we do annually continue to say, hey, succession planning has a problem. So good news. Advisors, I think, are self-diagnosing correctly. This is an exposure point for our industry. This is a challenge. And hopefully, a silver lining from COVID is that shot across the bow creates some fear and some energy to go get these succession plans put in place or just responsible things to do. But yeah, you're spot on. It is a symptom of a broader um, challenge where I think there's a little bit of a blind spot. Most advisors know that their human capital, their team, is just paramount to their success. And I think there's a strong emotional affinity I think they they believe in their staff in so many ways. They know that it's a linchpin to what they deliver. But oftentimes, they're not tending to this critical asset the way they could or, or arguably should. I'm part, I consider myself sort of the part of the REA community. So I'm just going to sort of self-criticize our community in, in terms of options or things we c- should consider doing differently. And I think that care and feeding can unlock so much value and power. Again, being provocative... This is an industry that that is so laser-focused on taking care of their clients, right? Clients come first. To be provocative, I challenge people to say, hey, maybe your clients shouldn't come first. Maybe your, your people should come first. Put your people above your clients to be provocative, at least theoretically. That may drive the very best value for your end clients. Richard Branson, that's his model. Employees come first. 
The best way to serve our clients is to have very happy employees. Marriott, Zappos, there's a number of firms that start with the employees. So I think that construct, even if it's just a management meeting, thinking through that to think through how to improve the organization is critical. So we can all agree this is the number one asset. Let's tend to it a little better. Let's tend to it a lot better. You know, performance reviews, such a powerful tool to help coach that next generation to, to serve clients better, to execute better, to become the future leaders and managers of the firms. This is something that shouldn't be a task, literally a painful task once a year. Oh, gee, we got to do reviews. Let's crank through this. It's a laborious, painful process. Instead, you want to transform that into a lighter but ongoing touch. Quarterly reviews that are lighter, ongoing coaching. It's sometimes challenging for managers and founders to realize that their people want coaching especially the youngest in our industry, the youngest in our country, there's this sponginess that they have. They're, they're like, please coach me to be better. Please coach me to, to help purpose of this organization of serving US investors. So not only sol- solving that succession, but putting intelligently designed incentive comp plans that is really a powerful way to create the performance review metrics. It creates this ongoing, easy way to to coach people and help them track their success, help you track their success. Yeah, there's a lot of value and power. And and every dollar, every hour you invest in this is going to unlock 10 times that in in long-term value for the company. Sure. But again, a difficult thing to do if you're a principal owner and you're dealing with clients to take the time even to turn your focus towards the internal human capital question. I think it's a tough thing for advisors to do. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And and that's part of the value of consultants like us. It's, hey, hire us. We're going to parachute in and help pull it together because because it's not necessarily easy to do, right? To go solve that on your own. I mean, the great thing about this industry is the principals, the founders, the management teams, these are really smart people. But to go invent that mousetrap is a lot of work. And that's part of the back to the the meta REAs and why people are selling to bigger firms. I I came from a major custodian in American Express before that. And I was used to having all these tools and capabilities when it was performance review time, all the documents were made, the, 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 the data had been pulled, I was giving guidance on what it looks like. A small company, even a own company, we don't have these things off the shelf. We had to sort of heal ourselves and create our own materials for that. But most advisors you know, don't have that handy. And that's why some organizations, many organizations have not developed this. And I just say, whether you do it yourself or you hire a firm or whatever it might be, there's so much power in doing that, that it'll yield great returns over time. Okay, brass tacks. I'm an RIA owner. What's the magic metric for me to value my firm? What is it? Is it two times revenue, 10 times earning? What's the, give me the one number that I can use. Let me pull the stake out of my heart. I just heard the revenue. Oh my gosh. You tried to trigger me. I'm offended. Let's see. All kidding aside. Yeah. There's not a single number. No, 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 no. It's all in good fun. It's all good. It's all good. So what I'd say is a few things. On one hand, you know me, I'm a nerd. I can say, hey, there's so many different elements. There's a myriad, et cetera. And there are, there literally are, but they all fall into three buckets. So I won't give you one, but I'll give you three. It's the growth. It's the profitability, not the revenues, but the profitability. And it's the risks associated with a firm. So I'll pull on that thread a little more. The growth of the company, that trajectory, how your firm is growing over time. Also, the machinery you have in place. Are you growing because of a methodical, well-thought-out strategy? You've thought through the the five stages of a a prospect lifecycle, and you've amended all these different things. You're tracking all these metrics. A nice methodical growth machine versus, gee, Dave's charisma, that's not necessarily scalable, et cetera. So that growth trajectory and how that's going to drive growth in the the future is huge. As a matter of fact, for every 1% 
if a firm can grow 1% faster a year versus their previous self or the firm next door to theirs, that will drive a 7.2% increase in growth. Uh, in value of the firm. So 1% growth faster, your firm is going to be worth 7% more. So very powerful metric. The profitability of the firm is critical as well. So uh, all kidding aside, two times revenue or whatever else, you're using math that like a four-year-old kid can do in their head to value your life's work, right? And sometimes the other people on the side of the equation are putting their life savings into play. You don't want to use two times or 2.3 times revenue or even seven times cash flow. You want to, you really want to create a discounted cash flow model or pay someone to value this valuable asset and get the number right. It's so critical. The profitability, however, what's the metric? It's not revenue. It's not AUM. It's the profitability that pays back the investor on the investment. So that's the critical one. And it can be a great health check. Do you have at or around or above industry average margins and good rationale for that? That's a health check. Matter of fact, if you're an extreme, if you're running at 70% margins, not the 28% of the industry average, that's kind of an unhealthy thing. It's like, all right, you got, you're going to need more people there. You're, you're probably understaffed. So the profitability is really important. And that's a key thing to look at. But sometimes in a blind spot is the risks associated with a firm, investment banking nerds, valuation nerds, we use this discounted cash flow model and we're discounting future profits, future cash flows back to present day based on a discount rate. It's essentially a risk assessment. Development company, there's 48 different risk factors that we're looking at. So everything from, we talked about performance reviews, are you reviewing your people once a year or never, or once a quarter or once a month, et cetera, versus you have a concentrated client position. One client takes up 20% of your business rather than the top 1% taking up 8.8%, which is average. Or do you have, you don't have non-competes, non-solicits, or you have other exposure points. You don't have a succession plan. So all these things, understanding the risks of your company are critically important as well. I know you asked for one, I'll, I'll give you those three. My apologies. <laughs> Understood. I, it just strikes me that I think a lot of RAs maybe get to a point where they start to think about monetizing their life work here. And say, okay, well, now's the time to start shopping around the, the firm. Would maybe be kind of surprised that even though we say it's a, or folks like you say, it's a seller's market out there, that they're not getting the traction or the attention that they think they should. Maybe the client base is aging, right? Maybe there are more clients are entering decumulation than they're getting new clients in the door. There's, I think, a lot of things there that can kind of derail that. And this leads me to my other question, next question for you, and we're getting to the end, I promise. We hear uh, about M&A deals daily, right? It mm -hmm. seems at this point now, there's not a day that goes by where there's not two or three deals announced, which leads me to believe that we're probably, for each one of those, there's maybe 30 to 40 that get right to that closing end line and then just fall apart. We never hear about the deals that don't go through, the deals that uh, aren't successful. You, I'm sure, hear much more about those. Oh, I see. Yeah. What's the, what, what is the ratio there? I mean, for every deal that's completed, how many fall apart and why do they fall apart? What's the most common reasons for uh, yeah. those deals not to be con consummated? Good question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tick through a whole bunch of stuff and then we could go deeper on any or all of it. One, you're spot on. There's about a, 160 transactions above 100 million per year as of 2020. Business days are spot on. It's this constant drip. A matter of fact, in January, we saw, I think, uh, like 30 deals in a month. It was just staggering. So M&A is, is hot. You know, right now we're going through a little bit of a lull. I think there's people catching their breath after the tour in 2020. So it's starting to ramp up and it's going to ramp up aggressively. I think Biden's tax laws are literally pushing people to, to move quickly. And that's a whole nother discussion. But I think the, the combination of COVID, 
really cementing the the importance of succession planning and putting that in place. And oftentimes people decide, hey, it's time to sell externally. I think the the tax changes, uh, again, are concerning. It affects money in real dollars. And that's part of the equation. It's a pool of sophisticated buyers today. And on one hand, you can argue, hey, it's a seller's market. On the other hand, it's a pretty good time to be a buyer. We've never seen so many transactions in the marketplace. So people are actually transacting. And you're right, for every one deal that's finalized, there's probably, I mean, depending on how you look at it, there's probably two or three that that didn't get done in some form or fashion. I mean, what are the different metrics to look at? I can share a couple. One is this fascinating. You look back five years, the number of sellers on an annual basis has doubled. Over the last five years, the number of buyers has only increased 30% in terms of the deals getting done. This other metric, 50 buyers for every seller... Uh, again, fiction is just not factually true, or at least depending on how you define it. We know for a fact that there's only, I think, 80 buyers that got a deal done last year. I mean, there were 160 buyers. So on average, it's about two sellers for every buyer as opposed to 50 buyers for every seller. And I think there's a couple of things there. If you are a buyer or you want to be a buyer, really being thoughtful and getting ducks in a row, make sure you've thought through the equation and you have a strong elegantly thought through deal structure and value proposition and why someone should should join you. It's a competitive space. So I think you want to be able to tell your story really effectively. I think on the sales side, good news, there's buyers, they keep expanding their bandwidth to, to be able to take on more deals. So today, most sellers are going to find a dance partner, for lack of a better word. If we did see twice as many sellers come on the market, let's say the next six months, it just doubled. Um, than what we've saw the last six uh, six months. I think we'd, we'd probably hit a point where there's just too many chairs taken out of the... What's that thing where you bring around the posy and the music yeah, stops? Well, and there's musical chairs. chairs. Yeah, yeah. yeah, music chairs. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I think we could, if we have a surge, a big surge in terms of sellers, find firms that can't get a deal done or can't sell to their main partners. So I, I think a long way to answer your question and another way to think about it is, gee, if I'm a seller, what should I do to make myself attractive? Awareness on a lot of the risks that you just pointed out. Do you have an older client base and things like that? How can you amend that? That's kind of hard to amend, actually. It takes a lot of time. But you know, being thoughtful about the profitability of the firm, understanding why your profit is a certain way, how you can optimize that. Sometimes selling to a third party can be the perfect solution to that, but you need to find the right party. So to another party, and it's like the worst equation. But being able to tell a story that really goes back to those things, the, the growth, the profitability, and how you're managing your firm and the risks that you're mitigating, I think are going to be key storylines in that, that discussion. Yeah. I remember speaking with Peter Malouk back in the... Mm-hmm right in, in March when the coronavirus really hit. And he was saying most RIAs, the majority of RIAs, probably handle a quarter of severely depressed markets, a down market. Yeah. They could handle a quarter fine. Two or three quarters of a, a down market would be painful for most. Mm-hmm. Do you concur with that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in other, in other words, how much of the success of this industry is based on the fact that we've seen market appreciation generally 20, yeah. some 25% over the past year, whatever it is? Yeah, I think it, it does have a big impact. And you know, earlier we were talking about succession. Part of that should be part of the discussion too. I mean, the good news is REA firms are, are pretty darn resilient. And back in 2008, we had a sustained period with COVID. It was one quarter down, it was down dramatically. Yeah. Profit was down 42% on average. And a quarter, 42% drop in profitability. And you're right, if that sustained itself, it, it'd get pretty ugly pretty quickly. So in 2008, we had that market decline. The firms went from 25% margins to 10% margins to 0% margins to even negative margins until 
They had to make hard decisions and say, you know what? We need to change our economic profile. We, we can't run unprofitably. And hopefully during those periods too, it's a good time to communicate to your staff how important they are because so many firms didn't cut employee pay or they held back on bonuses. But it was really the principles that took a huge hit. I, I personally did as well. It's like, okay, you got to, as the owner, absorb the incremental expenses or the drop in revenue and profitability. So I think many advisors had some had a number of psychological things happen through COVID. One is they realized that there is life is delicate and gee, a, a weird virus or that proverbial bus, these things can occur. And maybe I should be more thoughtful about succession planning. Two, you you see your profits drop 40% in a couple of months. That is a shot across the bow. And oftentimes that psychology is amended, that fear. I we think a lot about fear and aspirations when we're working with clients, it can be a safer place to be part of a, a much larger organization like Creative Planning or some of these other firms. Yeah, part, all part of the psychological mix as you determine whether you want to stay independent or join forces with a bigger firm. Let me ask you the final question. How did you get to be doing what you're doing now? What's your story? 17 years ago, did you see the writing on the wall and said, this RIA industry is the one that's going to be growing and that's the one I want to hook my ship to, where you came out of American Express, I know, and one of the custodians. What's your background and how did you start determine that you wanted to start the bone company? Yeah, yeah. I'm here in Berkeley. And if you see me on video, I'd point and I could say, hey, two miles from there is where I went to undergrad. I accidentally, quite literally accidentally started a clothing company during my senior year at UC Berkeley. And before I knew it, I was manufacturing and selling surf pants not only to several Nordstrom location, but a, a bunch of surf shops. I'm not even a surfer. So how does that happen uh, accidentally? Yeah. So I was playing in a band, believe it or not. And my girlfriend at the time ended up making me this really funky pair of like surf pants. And everywhere I went for the next year, people were asking me where I got them. And eventually I was in a surf shop in Santa Barbara and the owner came up and he said, wow, those are really cool. Where'd you get those? And I said, oh, I have my own company. I make them. And after about 15 minutes, he said, I actually don't believe you have a company or you make these, but if you do, I'll give you 20 bucks a pair and here's a purchase order for 10 pairs. So <laughs> I went back up to school and I started talking to my girlfriend into helping me make a couple pairs and then believe it or not, my, my mom helping me. And from there, it developed into hiring someone on campus, setting up a mini sweatshop in the basement of the building I was living in and ultimately manufacturing out of San Francisco. We'd go to LA and get fabric and send it up to San Francisco and distribute to these Nordstrom locations and surf shops. So yeah, I was a liberal arts major. My thesis was on Napoleonic propaganda and how he manipulated <laughs> artists of the day. So I had no clue what I was doing. And I ran a couple other small companies when I had no clue. But when I came, so I went back to school. I got an MBA at Cornell, joined the business strategy group at American Express, had a lot of fun doing that, then joined the business strategy group at, at Schwab a couple years later. And the first project I worked on 17 years ago was whether Schwab should create some value-added services and help their 5,000 REAs with this new pain point of M&A and succession planning. That became fascinating pretty quickly. And then you're right, at some point, it wasn't 17 years ago, but it was almost 10 years ago that I thought, okay, this is really going to increase and it, I really have fun running my own company. So I'm going to go independent and start to own own company. That was 10 years ago. All right. And the rest is history, as they say. Well, that's great. Yeah, I had, no, I had no idea. The, the, it's, it all started with uh, surf pants. That's, uh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, who knew?
<laughs> and are you, are you still playing an instrument? I, I see you on video. Sometimes you have a guitar there hanging in the background and I think a Marshall amp uh, to, your, to your left. There. You, you have a great memory. It? Yeah. I, I hadn't played for years and I decided, what if I got like a really cool guitar, I'll, I'll get back into it. So I went, I bought my favorite. When I was young, I wanted a, a Les Paul. So I got a Gibson Les Paul custom, started playing it. Now I'm nerding out. I got a Vox amp too. I just got a Stratocaster a little while ago. So yeah, I got the bug and it worked. It got me back into guitar, so I'm really enjoying it. It's fun. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Well, hopefully, maybe someday we'll uh, see you at a conference and uh, you'll be performing. Maybe it's uh, I don't know. Well, jam absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Be great. Be fun. All right, Dave. Thanks very much. This has been great. I really appreciate you talking to us. Oh, my pleasure. I had an absolute. I had an absolute blast. Thanks for inviting me. And thank you for listening. This has been uh, Advisor Innovations at WealthManagement.com. This podcast is sponsored by LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member Finra SIPC. LPL Financial is a separate entity from and not affiliated with WealthManagement.com.